Hello and welcome again to the Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm your host, Moeed Amin, and the goal for this show is to really challenge the conventional wisdom when it comes to sales and persuasion. Uh, so we are going to be covering topics as wide and as varied as possible, not just the conventional sales skills and approaches. You know, we've had experts on the show from behavioral psychology to, you know, body language to functional medicine to personal brand developers, you name it. Uh, you know, we've had these people on the show. And the reason why is uh, success is not just about the skills or the knowledge you acquire. It's about the person that you become. So we're all about elevating the human side of sales. Now, talking about the human side of sales, one of the things that I've been conversing on with people in my group and a network that I'm part of is around this, this kind of elevated or, or, or more importance around the humanity of sales. And nowhere more important does that start than the human-centric culture of the company that you work in. And culture, especially at these, this, these kind of macroeconomic fluctuations, let's call it that, uh, and, and a series of black swans that are happening out there, you know, that can have a toll on the psychology and therefore the culture of the business and the people within that business. So that can manifest in the way that you engage with your buyers. And uh, I got to, and that's why I'm really excited actually to have our next guest on the show today. Um, you know, she's on a mission to uh, help make the world better or the work better, actually, um, so that we all live a life on purpose. And I'm really, really looking forward to hearing what she means by that. Um, her impressive career spans, you know, almost three decades with, um, you know, 19 years as the head of uh, finance operations and people for KPMG Europe. Um, she's also led uh, research into the neurobiology of trust and the intrinsic um, kind of motivation. And on the back of her academic knowledge and leadership skills and experience, uh, she created and founded the company called uh, The Seven. So she's since helped uh, many companies develop their leaders to establish a truly inclusive culture of trust and psychological safety. And I've got to tell you, uh, in a world now, in the world that we live in, you know, psychological safety sounds like Nibbana. So I'm really pleased to welcome our next guest, Suzanne Jacobs. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Hello, good to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Really looking forward to, to the discussion today because, uh, you know, this, this topic of culture uh, and you know, psychological safety, especially, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot more around mental health uh, and, and how important that is within businesses and how that needs to be addressed and identified, not something that we should kind of hide from in a lot of ways. And we've seen that a lot happening. So really interested to, to hear your perspective on that. Maybe we ask, start with that first question, actually, which is, you know, how would you define psychological safety? Great question to start with. Yeah, I mean, psychological safety was really coined by, um, and many of your listeners may know of Amy Edmondson, so psychologist and researcher, um, some time ago. And her definition, so it's absolutely right, you must refer to her, her definition and her research, which is fantastic. And I'm going to read it here because I wrote it down. I wanted to remind myself. It's to be able to act and engage with a team without fear of negative consequences. For me... Psychological safety is incredibly important. I personally prefer the term trust, which encompasses that definition. 
trust for me extends beyond the absence of fear to all the things that actually make, and we're talking about work here, but make work great. So I think for me, trust is that we, we, all, we all understand when we think about the family member or the friend that we trust, we, we, we get it, but actually we don't know really how to do it. So psychological safety extended through trust for me is about really creating the environment where we can be fully brain online, really. That sounds like such an ideal situation. Maybe if you break it down, because you talked about negative consequences. So can you give some examples of negative consequences and what you mean by that? We can, yeah, I mean, we can look at what trust is and, and encompassing psychological safety, because there is a formula for it. There's, there's, a, there's a recipe. You can do it. So what, what do I mean by negative consequences? These are the things that we've probably all experienced in our, in our workplace, over our careers. It'll be the um, leader who micromanages and put yourself back in that situation um, it's the fear of giving a presentation and it all goes wrong and you've forgotten your words and you've fallen off the stage it's the up-and-coming appraisal it's the can I give you some feedback sentence that comes in we often walk through those huge wonderful double doors of our organizations and we come from a world in which we trust the train driver to get us to our destination safely that cars will stop for us and we can cross the road but as soon as we walk into our workplaces actually our brain starts to look around and starts to notice some, some threats and some dangers and everybody around us you know I'm talking extremes here but all of a sudden everybody around us we've got to start looking out for and when your brain starts to notice or interpret I should say and this is really important because it is an interpretation that there is some threat in the system we trigger our you know the threat mechanism which actually is creates that sense of fear and it either stops us doing something uh, we avoid it we procrastinate it doesn't feel great you know and it reduces productivity innovation collaboration all of those things so it's, it's all of those sorts of examples of the day-to-day business environment it's the uncertainty it's the constant change and not that those things shouldn't be in the system because there's opportunity in there as well but it's how we're able to deal with them and how we're led through them as well I'd love to hear your thoughts on how how that fear can manifest um, and trust in a, in a kind of sales and buyer environment because I'm I would assume that's pretty heightened. Those are those are my thoughts, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Before we get to that, though, everything you just described there, Suzanne, felt like there's a large element of interoreceptive element versus exteroreceptive. So how much of this is internally within us that we perceive, as you rightly said, that we perceive those things happening, but they may not be there. In your research and your experience, how much of that fear-based response how much of that comes from our own internal perceptions of something that may be false uh, versus actually it's it's an environment caused by the leaders that's causing you to react in that way? I think it's pretty hard to answer that with anything that's definitive because everything, as, as you know, everything is our own reality based on our own interpretation. So we could actually say, well, everything, everything is internal is is fascinating isn't it when you think about all those human beings in one workplace 
with every single one of them having a unique reality of the external environment. So understanding that for ourselves, self-awareness being understanding that bedrock of resilience from emotional literacy to emotional regulation helps us to literally see and understand our own perception and shift and change that as it is this actually reality or is it not is it of my own interpretation hmm. so whilst I'm not giving a definitive answer here I think it's it, you're absolutely right we need to understand that we can create our own environment internally and that can be exacerbated if the threat external is not that big we will start to amplify it if it's not resolved you know stress is only distressing if we perceive we have no control over it that said however and i do believe this both from my own experience what i'm witnessing today and also my own research is the environment in which we are working is becoming a great deal more let's call it neurologically threatening and that's what we've got to be able to understand here is that I, I certainly hope a lot of your listeners are absolutely not facing physical danger in their workplaces on a day-to-day -day basis. We do face, however, this psychological danger. As I said, you know, the up-and-coming appraisal, the deadline, the difficult client, whatever it may be, some of which will be of our own making and some of it will actually be in the environment. But the environment is, I think, getting much tougher. Let's call it a lot more threatening neurologically. Now, we can rationally know that giving a presentation isn't going to be life or death, but that's not how our brain is responding to it. I'm fascinated. I have been fascinated for many years, years as a leader of, you know, an enormous amount of people across different you know, countries, trying to understand how I as a leader can create the environment where it is genuinely safe, that people trust the environment so they can perform and I think that's actually just on that note as a slight sidebar here is my role as a leader is not to motivate. I can't. It comes from inside. My role as a leader is to create the environment where individuals can choose to perform because it's trusting and it's safe. But yeah, going back to that, your question, I have been fascinated by the fact that actually as human beings, we have created, literally built environments in which we work and processes and mechanisms and leadership training that actually sits contra to our own neurological needs and wiring I mean when you really take a step back we are we're creating our own our own issues we can't cheat our biology and we need to be able to understand truly and understand you know at a depth of physiology and neurology as to what the human being actually requires in order to be able to perform. But we are, we've created these workplaces where actually it does exactly the opposite. And I think that's entrenching. I think you've, you've absolutely alluded to the uncertainty, the macro, the micro, pandemics, uh, concerns about uh, world security, um, huge shifts demographically, attitudinally, shift in the relationship between employer and employee. I call it that, a sort of a colliding context, which was amplified, I think, in the pandemic, not caused by it. And I think, personally, it's entrenching a more toxic 
culture generally. Let's talk about that then, because I'm glad you you mentioned that a lot of the leadership training, you know, the environment, a lot of the kind of conventional wisdom out there actually runs contrary to our new to our biology. And I've been talking about that for many years, actually, specifically within the sales environment, actually, a lot of the the, the leadership styles, the coaching or lack of it, the training, the, the, the skills that are being explained as best practice actually run contrary to the biology for how people make decisions and feel safe and trusted trusted enough to make those kind of decisions with that buyer-seller relationship so in the face of all those things that macroeconomically microeconomically are happening out there and you're saying that the environment has become more i mean to use your term more neurologically threatening have you seen examples of companies that have addressed this culture in a safe way, even in the face of all these things happening around them? And, and if not, then you know, feel free to describe what it should look like. But I'm really intrigued to see if you've seen companies and leaders doing this. I have seen very few organisations try their absolute best. I have worked with fantastic CEOs and leaders in organizations who get it mm. and that's not that's not designed to be you know to, to condescend in any way but there is a uh, why watch the shift and think actually hang on a second uh, you know I know more about these computers that I sit in front of than I do human beings in front of me so, so what do I do how can I do this and when I say and I use the term try to I think so much of how we have created these workplaces, how we have entrenched certain leadership skills, we go all the way back to good old Taylor and, you know, what did Henry Ford say? Uh, why is it that every time I get a pair of hands, I get a, there's a brain attached? The workplace has moved on. We've, we've shifted significantly, but we haven't caught up with how we support individuals within the workplace. The fact that you say the lack of, I mean, I... I that's what I see most of the time. So these organizations who really try, they then come up against most of the time, the systemic challenges, the we're too busy challenges. You know, none of this is an overnight fix. This is a fundamental shift in how we lead, how we work. And as I say, the relationship between employer and employee, it, is, it, it needs to shift because we're in, let's say this colliding context, you know, technology, the speed and, acceleration of it uh, just to name one thing uh, means that a significant amount of our jobs will disappear a significant amount of retraining will be done we need to lead human beings to unleash unleash their innate talents which can't at the moment be done by technology um, in fact the world economic forum um, listed out their top 10 skills needed for the modern era of work and they are all every single one of them from creative thinking agile thinking innovation collaboration they are all innately human but we've got to shift the environment and leadership to be able to unleash those so to go back to your question i have seen some examples where companies have tried i've not seen any organization really be able to do it in in my experience what i see more often is a desire to uh, the system takes over again so it doesn't get embedded 
the tools which are simple, practical, but have to be practiced to make it BAU, don't get embedded because they're not practiced. It's the, it's more often, I just, I'm just not seeing it happen, not in the way it needs to. It's not easy, but it is also simple, if that makes sense. It's not, I mean, it might be neuroscience, but it's not rocket science in terms of what we need to do, but it does take a lot of effort and it does take time to fundamentally shift anything. We're talking behavior, we're talking, you know, neurological wiring here, really. Is the effort worth it? So I'm asking that from the perspective of the traditional perspective in which leaders and businesses view things. So I know it is worth it from a human perspective, right? As in, you know, treating our fellow human being well. Mm -hmm. But from a business perspective, is the effort worth it? Are there any numbers that show, you know, you know, for companies or if you do, if you do kind of go down that path, here's what this means to your KPIs and metrics and performance versus if you don't. You can absolutely measure it now. I don't need to tell any of your listeners in terms of the return on investment of an engaged workforce. Mm. That research is out, out there. You just ping it out there. Gallup happens to be my favorite in terms of the depth and longitudinal research that they have and the quality of the research, but it's out there. You know, we know that engaged teams perform better. They are literally healthier, more productive, more efficient, collaborate more, more innovative, all that wonderful stuff. There are different methodologies, but we can measure engagement and there are links through to, let's call it the bottom line. The difference here is, is not that we can't measure it and not that the ROI is out there because it's such a fundamental shift. It feels like a huge effort. And I don't know that that link between ROI has really been made or is is really felt. I mean, one of the things I often start with whenever I talk to any leadership team, um, because I have a finance background, we talk about some of the numbers here. But we also, whilst I can make that link from engagement to the bottom line, engagement is an output, it's an outcome, it's a result. It's a result of those human beings in a safe environment, an environment which their brain trusts what's going on, understands it, it's reliable, it's it's understood. So you've got to go all the way back to that in order to be able to get the outcome of engagement, which then correlates straight through to productivity. And if we look at the challenges that we're facing now, not just the macro and micro economic uncertainty, security challenges that we're all facing they are obviously significant and ones we need to manage and tread carefully with but we also have to face the reality that actually over the last decade levels of stress has significantly i mean i'm talking up to 200 percent increase engagement has fallen through the floor there's absolutely no surprise around the positive correlation between those two one leads begets the other. We are less productive, we are less innovative, we are working harder and we're getting iller. There's a, a, a wonderful um, quote by uh, a particular Pfeffer, John Pfeffer, I think his name, he, he's written this brilliant book and brilliant pa um, paper, but he basically says dying for a paycheck. John Pfeffer actually looks at this and he's able to, through his research, corroborated with many other research, has shown that workplace stress is now number five 
in the biggest killers in the world. So that's the human piece, but it is also directly correlated to our ability to sustain performance, productivity, collaboration, innovation in our workplaces. So it's not a nice to have. Culture is not a nice to have. It's an absolute hmm. performance imperative. And we, we get a lot of company founders that listen into the show as, as well as sales leaders, right? And in those businesses, you know, theoretically, they're starting their business from scratch. There, there isn't an entrenched internal, at least, system that they're having to fight against, as you, as you mentioned before, where the system takes over sometimes, even when you're attempting to make these changes. And I, I appreciate these are not quick things, but what highly important things would you recommend that these founders uh, address and implement in their companies in order to start to create the kind of culture that you're describing? There's a couple of things in that that I, and this is where I, I, I love working at an environment that's not quite created yet. Um, it's the best opportunity to start as you mean to go on, but you need to know where to start in order to be able to go on. So there are a couple of things here. One, one is um, I, I talk about a process or a framework called lead from the middle. So you start understanding right at the very beginning why you are in business. This is the purpose stuff. And we can really underestimate the value of purpose and its relationship to productivity and sustainability and growth. We understand how you want to do business. So that's the why. But how do I want to do business? These are my values. So get that right. Get that clear in your mind. Because as the organization grows, they can fall away very, very quickly. And without that, you have no, let's call it the proverbial North Star to be able to hang your decisions on and simplify your decision-making. So that's the middle. And then it's about being able to be a leader that can join the dots. So this is the systems piece. This is working on the business rather than just consumed in the business. So to be able to look at everything from operational excellence, strategic direction, your clients, customers, whoever that makeup is, the, 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 the people piece, that's the culture piece. You know, these things are interrelated. They, you cannot split them apart. One affects the other. It's a constant interrelationship and interdependency, which is also affected on and affects out macro and micro forces. So you've got to be able to see all of these things and join the dots with every decision you make. And that's a discipline of thinking. And once you've got that, you can then actually also deep dive into what culture actually is and become a conscious architect of the culture that you want people to experience when they're working for you. Not just because it makes it a nice place to come into work every day, but because it does directly link and correlate through to productivity and innovation and all those things that we've been speaking about. So if you can start from a position of why I'm in business in the first place, what's my purpose here? How do I go about doing my business, my values? How do I make sure that I'm looking at the whole system all the time and all my leaders that will be coming on board will see the same thing, but you consciously create using the knowledge that is out there on how do you create truly inclusive cultures of trust? Not just say it, not just put the mission poster up on the wall or the value statement up on the wall. It doesn't cut it, it never has. 
In fact, it can actually do the reverse and it can you know, entrench more threat into the system. It's really getting behind it. So I think the ability to be able to have that thinking alongside the idea, the product, whatever it is, is, is being sent out there in the world, it allows an organization to grow purposefully, thoughtfully, and in a way that will be far more sustainable through tough times and good times. How would a founder or, or business leader, how would they avoid harming this culture that they're trying to create in the face of, say, intense situations? So let's say there's a situation where we're not achieving the numbers that we want to, right? Or we're not pacing towards that. That, that can obviously cause stress or you know, investor level stress sometimes, which, that, which happens quite often, actually. Right. So how how would a founder or business leader avoid conducting actions, you know, sometimes intentional, sometimes unintentionally that lead towards damaging that culture that they've been so painstakingly trying to create? Because it can happen. So how, how do you kind of protect yourself from those outside forces? You're absolutely right. You know, we, we often say this comes from leader leaders down. It does. Leaders represent um I mean, they, they actually influence, sorry, not necessarily represent, they influence up to 70% of engagement levels within their team organization. So they are the main experience that people get from work. The leader's ability to be able to, this is the emotionally literate leader. This is the leader who is able to regulate their own emotion, to be able to work on the business. Tough times happen. You're growing a business, it's really tough stuff. So it's how do you make sure that you are continually regulating your own emotion, understanding your impact and affect on others so that you can ensure that you are always making the decisions that are right for the business. And that includes those that are working within the business and, and with you and how you show up. Leaders are on stage all the time. And that is irrespective of whether you can be seen or heard. You are there all the time, what you say, what you don't say. So one of the elements of human leadership, one of the dimensions of it is, is conscious compassion. And I use compassion rather than empathy because empathy is incredibly important, but actually we also need to be able to show compassion and to be conscious about applying that. And this is the emotionally intelligent leader. This is not new information. This is not new leadership stuff. It's been around for a long time. And Daniel Goldman uh, uh, obviously coined all of this expression um, and the research, but it remains as true today. In fact, even more important today, as we create psychologically safe and trusting environments, in the face of uncertainty and huge pressure than it ever has. So it's really, for me, it's about being able to support a leader or the leader to be able to understand how do I actually create these cultures? Give me the how, not just the, not just the knowledge, it's gotta be practical, how do I do it? How in the face of stress do I regulate my emotion and how I show up? And not just how I show up to my, to the people who are working with me and, and the stakeholders in my business, but equally, how do I make sure that I'm making the right decisions and they're not clouded by my own levels of distress, negative stress? That takes a lot of self-awareness. It takes a great deal of resilience, but it can be learned.
it can be learned resilience can be learned i completely agree just just as courage can be learned as well at least practiced and developed what you said about being emotionally resilient and uh, you know in, even in the face of uh, stresses and situations um i know this is a very big topic are there any powerful approaches or techniques or even tips that you can share that can help do that because that's not an easy thing to do so I'm just wondering if you have any any ideas or any 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 advice you can give to listeners out there on how to do that. Yes, <laughs> it's a short answer. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's an absolutely enormous topic. There's absolutely tons in there. Wonderful, amazing, hugely powerful tools. Honestly, I wish I'd been given these when I was leading many years ago. But yeah, let me let me think. Um, so one of the things that I often find with leaders, particularly founder leaders is there incredibly high levels of self-criticism. So the ability to be able to reframe our own thinking and therefore our reality is incredibly powerful to be able to, to grow not just emotional literacy, but then the resilience to be able to make the best decisions in the face of, of, of you know, difficult, difficult times. One of those aspects, I mean, it, it, there are so many here, but one of the aspects is to be able to focus on what actually is in your control, not what's out of your control. I think that's something that we all hear so many times, but actually there is um, a, a tool there that really helps you to define how I am thinking about something and everything feels out of my control, but how do I now reframe that to think, hang on a second, how do I look almost left field and look at the things that really are in my gift and you only need something really small for your brain to go oh okay I have got a level of influence for it to then start adding to it and start you start finding the pathway through it but if we can put ourselves back into the driving seat we regulate our emotion and we can start making better decisions I think also being able to support a leader to become their own best friend rather than, we all do it from time to time, we all beat ourselves up, we get cross with ourselves, but actually this tendency for negative self-talk can be debilitating. And what we need to be able to do is actually observe the thinking, as you know, thoughts are only thoughts, they're not, they're not facts until we actually sort of make them live and breathe by our own actions and behavior. So to be able to just validate our own thinking, which is just information from our brain that's going, hang on, there's a, there's, a, there's a threat you need to you need to pay attention to this so I'm going to send you up some difficult emotions here and it's going to feel uncomfortable quite right you're supposed to do something about this danger and I'm going to send you up some thoughts they're not very nice thoughts but it's for you to actually make sure you do something about it but to be able to just observe them and to be able to just take a step back and validate hang on a second is this is this an assumption is it is it is it absolute fact and would I be saying these things to a friend? Would I be, you know, recriminating them for something they haven't even yet done and telling them not e to not even bother? Would I be beating them up, you know, verbally as I beat myself up? So we need to look for that double standard and, and to be able to reframe our thinking and put ourselves into the driving seat. I think they're, they're the ones that come to mind as you ask that question. And I wasn't expecting, you know, the, the silver bullet here, but even just helping people think in the right way. Most of the time, it's not lack of knowledge. It's just 
lack of our ability on how to think not necessarily what we should know and and you you gave some really great ones there in fact the last one there is something that resonates with me both from myself and from my clients you know i'm often very hard on myself and words are an expression of thought and then as you said thought precedes action if you decide to act on it i i say that we we the english language language for example is one of the richest languages in the world in terms of the number of words that you have at your disposal to to as closely as possible describe how you feel and yet most of us most of us live a very poor life because we use a small set of words to describe everything and, and a client of mine just the other day you know, for, forgot to include me on a uh, a calendar invitation for our session right he he was the one that sent it out and he said oh that was so amateur of me so stupid I forgot that well hang on a second it's just just an honest mistake so why are you beating yourself up over it because the words that we used for ourselves to describe ourselves creates identity and then identity creates who we show up as so it's it's really interesting that you shared it like that and and, and those were the kind of tips it, it felt like more like you know how do you take stock and and think about how you're talking to yourself and how you are translating a situation and it kind of starts there or those are some of the big ones so i thought that was really interesting i wish we could talk about this more often and and i think we're, we're coming up to time and i really wanted to ask you about the sales elements maybe that's something we can talk about if we invite you invite you again to talk about this because th there's a big element of trust when it comes to the seller and, and buyer interaction one question i ask all our guests who join on the show which is um which three books would you recommend that our listeners and viewers should read and it doesn't have to be related to this topic it could be something else or or, or alternatively you might say actually here are the three experts or the three people that you would recommend our, our viewers and listeners follow and learn from uh, what would your answer be i'm going to revert to my absolute favorites some of them are the classics can i have more than three yes of course okay. Anything by Daniel Kahneman. Um, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners that will be aware of his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is absolutely fantastic. But honestly, anything, his research is so relevant and so interesting. As for me personally, is uh, John Medina. Um, he uh, wrote Brain Rules which still remains as one of the most interesting and relevant books on what's really going on inside this amazing piece of anatomy that sits in total silence and total darkness inside our skulls. One of my favourite books that still remains, and I think this book probably is about 15 years old now, is by Tony Schwartz, and his work and research continues. But It was a book called The Way We're Working Isn't Working, and actually I think it's more relevant today. Than it was when he he wrote it um, and there's some great um practical tools in there and then i'm a great fan of really reading and absorbing anything by barbara fredrickson martin seligman i mean the greats really but they still stand out to me these individuals i've mentioned they stand out to me because of the depth of their, not just the research they do, but the depth of their thinking and how they think about it. So often in my field, you often just read the same idea repeated and repeated and repeated with a few different words. Um, so they, they'd be my top, my top ones. There'd be loads of others, but they're the ones I tend to rely on and go back to every time. Yeah, that's that was really interesting. The, the particular ones by 
John Medina, I, ha I have, but I haven't got around to, but Tony Schwartz, I haven't, I haven't uh, read that book. It did, the title did remind me of a book that one of my mentors advised me I read when I was moving into or considering the move into the leadership role. I can't remember who wrote the book, but he, the title of it, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And I thought it would be around skills, but actually it wasn't. It was about the human leadership that you talked about, which is how do I treat my fellow human being? How do I show up for them? What is the nature of the conversations that I'm having with them? Am I helping them feel safe, for example? So it was a real, real eye-opener. Uh, and actually the, the title of that Tony Schwartz book really reminded me of that book. I thought that was a good one. Suzanne, this was, this was incredibly insightful. And how can our viewers and listeners connect with you and learn more about you? They can look at my website. Um, there's also access in there to the Human Leadership Series if they wanted to. That's um, uh, the seven, as in written out rather than the number, the seven.org.uk. Um, they can email me directly. Always love to hear from everybody. But that's S-U-S-A-N-N-E at the7.org.uk um, and on LinkedIn, Suzanne Jacobs at LinkedIn. Always great to open a discussion. Um, um, and my website as well has got lots of stuff on it that maybe if they want to delve a little bit more deeper into the learning, it's there, all free, all accessible. Yeah, and we'll leave a link in the show notes for everyone to be able to access uh, those, uh, those contact channels as easily as possible. So yeah, Suzanne, thank you very much for coming on the show and, and sharing an incredibly interesting and important perspective around the culture of businesses and you know making people feel psychologically safe i think that's what people are trying to do through the term of mental health um it's not an easy thing but it's absolutely a worthwhile thing to do so thank you very much for taking time to come on the show and sharing your knowledge and perspective for all of us to learn from absolute privilege thanks so much for having me great so this is Murray Damon signing out from this episode and if there are any aspects of what you have learned through our episodes, or if you'd like to learn more about how to sell like a buyer and, and to understand the neural aspects of sales and how it can improve your sales approach, uh, do contact me, link in the show notes below. Until the next episode, thank you very much, everyone. Mm -hmm.